Hey everyone, Kendall here. I want to share a quick disclaimer before you listen to the following episode. This episode is the second in our Kitchen Meditation series on diet culture. The first episode of this series on fasting and feasting released last Sunday. The topic of diet culture is a highly fraught conversation and one that's deeply personal to many of us. As such, it's a conversation that I approach with a lot of nuance and care. I want to make sure to start by clarifying that I am not a therapist or a nutritionist, a doctor, nor an allergy specialist, and I don't pretend to have their expertise on these matters. My own expertise is in studying food on a theoretical level and the ways our relationship to eating forms and shapes us as human beings. Now, I firmly believe that this particular focus of mine lends unique insight that's valuable in conversation with these other specialized fields. But please don't use these meditations as a substitute for guidance from health experts. Rather, allow them to shape your understanding of how you relate to food and why food's impact on your physical, mental, and spiritual health can be so profound. to mind when you hear the phrase clean eating? Is it raw fruits and vegetables, whole grains, nuts, seeds, milk in a glass bottle, and home fermented yogurt? Or is it tubs and jars and packages covered in labels that say organic, all natural, grain, dairy, and refined sugar free? What about a squishy loaf of Wonder Bread? or any animal that has a divided hoof and that chews the cud. The definition of clean eating changes with time and culture. It's a framework that reveals a set of personal or cultural values and anxieties in relation to food. The classification isn't harmful per se, but the concept of clean is pretty powerful in determining how we view ourselves and how we view others. Let's explore what's at stake as a result. Welcome to Kitchen Meditations, a weekly podcast from Edible Theology, where we examine the ways God meets us in the kitchen and at the table. I'm your host, Kendall Vanderslice. If you're hungry for a taste of God's hope and healing in the mundane tasks of your everyday life, then you've come to the right place. May these meditations bring you a bit of grounding as you prepare to eat today and every day. Let's get started with a little spiritual mise en place, a prayer to orient ourselves before we begin. In the professional kitchen, mise en place describes the process of preparing yourself and your station for the work ahead. It involves measuring your ingredients, reading your recipes all the way through, so that you've got a sense for where you're headed before you even begin. I like to think of mise en place as a way to prepare my own mind and body as well, asking God to be present with me as I cook or as I bake. Our spiritual mise en place today is drawn from the book of Acts, Chapter 10. Slow your breathing. And now, as you breathe, 
Repeat with me. Inhale. Do not call anything impure. And as you exhale, that God has made clean. In early 20th century America, it was pretty common for families to bake bread at home rather than purchasing their bread in a store. This was out of a mixture of practicality and a bit of fear. Some bakers had been known to stretch their flour with sawdust or chalk, and consumers worried that if they bought bread from a store, they might purchase a contaminated loaf. Soon, though, new technology emerged that sped up the process of baking bread. These machines could make thousands of uniform loaves that were soft, white, fluffy, sliced, and cheap. A far cry from the hearty loaves of bread that had been the norm. These industrialized bakeries needed to change consumer habits in order to sell their loaves, encouraging housewives to let go of their home baking and leave the bread making to the professionals instead. Marketers played in to growing societal fears of germs. They advertised the purity of these new loaves, made in shiny laboratories, not bakeries covered in dust and flour. Made with scientific precision, these new industrialized loaves were the healthiest, cleanest choice. Today, of course, Wonder Bread holds the opposite connotation. Instead of serving as a hallmark of the clean eating movement, it's a key image for the wellness community of all that's wrong with the American food system overprocessed and utterly separated from its source. What do we mean when we talk about food as clean or unclean? What is our goal in using this term? Is it a word that you tend to use or one that you prefer to avoid? At its best, clean eating is a framework through which we make sense of the things we put into our bodies separating that which will help us from that which will do us harm. With ever-shifting dietary trends and increasing separation from our food system, you and I both want some way of defining how to eat in a manner that's good for us. The idea of eating what's clean sounds pretty compelling, except that there's no consistent way of defining what that means. Pushback against industrialized food is pretty widespread these days. But as you can see from the Wonder Bread story, eaters today are not the first to use the term clean to classify our food. In fact, the concept of clean and unclean eating goes at least as far back as the writing of Leviticus. The Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, of all the animals that live on land, these are the ones you may eat. You may eat any animal that has a divided hoof and that chews the cud. There are some that only chew the cud or only have a divided hoof, but you must not eat them. The camel, though it chews the cud, does not have a divided hoof. It is ceremonially unclean for you. The rabbit, though it chews the cud, does not have a divided hoof. It is unclean for you. The pig, though it has a divided hoof, does not chew the cud. It is unclean for you. You must not eat their meat or touch their carcasses. They are unclean for you. This passage sounds to most of us like a laundry list of random prohibitions with little rhyme or reason. 
To the ancient Israelites, though, it actually probably made a lot of sense. According to the social theorist Mary Douglas, these regulations fit within the Israelites' sense of order. Animals that acted in a manner fitting to their class were clean, and animals that defied classification were unclean. Now, I'm not going to get into all of the theological implications of Levitical food laws here. That's for another episode. I just want to point out that the concept of clean eating has been around a long time, and it typically has more to do with social ideas of the way things should be than any actual definable understanding of health. As a result, the types of food that pass the clean-unclean test change over time. Scripture itself even catalogs this change. In the book of Acts, the Apostle Peter has a vision of a sheet descending with all kinds of animals that were deemed unclean. Kill and eat, God tells Peter, to which Peter panics, until God tells him that the rules and classifications have changed. When we relate to food in terms of clean and unclean, it is really hard to make a mental shift allowing ourselves permission to eat what we've classified as dirty. The framework of clean and unclean food helps us make sense of the world around us. It helps us define what seems fitting and what seems out of place. It's a framework to hold the social anxieties of our given moment. Let's look at how that plays out today. The increasing industrialization of food has led to a widespread separation from what we eat. The anxiety of not knowing how our food arrived from field to pantry is appeased by the idea of getting back to basics. Clean eating in this framework is eating foods that have been minimally processed so that we can feel a sense of control over what we put into our bodies. It's about returning to an order that seems to make sense. But even now, like consumers a century ago, we are subject to the whims of marketers that prey on these fears, who mark our eggs and meat and produce and dairy with terms like all-natural, organic, free-range, to trigger a sense of cleanliness and purity, even if the terms communicate very little about how the food was raised. Over the past decade or so, these marketing trends have actually begun to shift the cultural perception of what is clean. Wander the aisles of Costco or Harris Teeter, and you're sure to find row upon row of bags and tubs and boxes that boast of their use of alternative ingredients. Grain-free, refined sugar-free, paleo-friendly, they claim. These brands are redefining our perceptions of clean eating before our very eyes making processed food more acceptable, so long as it's free from ingredients that consumers are skeptical of today. Although I, I might sound a bit cynical here, I actually don't think the framework of cleanliness is inherently bad. It can be a helpful tool, if it's used to make sense of the values you hold around food. But the time, financial freedom, and culinary knowledge required to evaluate the foods we buy in this way is a privilege that we don't all share. And the ability to research labels and understand what different buzzwords mean is a massive privilege too. I study these things for a living and I still can't keep up. 
The biggest danger of the framework of clean and unclean, though, comes when we associate the cleanliness of food with the morality of the people who eat it. To eat clean makes me clean and therefore makes me good, the mentality goes. Or to eat unclean makes me unclean and therefore makes me bad. This moralizing of certain foods, and thus the moralizing of the people who eat certain foods, is part of what made the Apostle Peter so reluctant to eat the foods that God brought before him. Shame, anxiety, and condescension towards others all too often get coupled together with the concept of clean eating. And, well, you probably know how I feel about eating and shame. Next time you find yourself tempted to think of a food as clean or dirty, ask yourself why it is that you perceive the food in that way. Is there a definable reason you worry this particular food item will do you harm? Or is it born of a generalized perception that you, on deeper thought, can't quite place? Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. We'll get to our kitchen tip in just a moment, but I want to take a quick break to tell you more about the Edible Theology Project. Edible Theology is an educational media project helping you connect the communion table to the kitchen table. Our podcast and curriculum are designed to help you heal relationships, both to food and community. I'm really excited to share that in just a few weeks, I'll be releasing a new book that strikes right at the heart of our mission here. It's called By Bread Alone, a baker's reflections on hunger, longing, and the goodness of God. The book is a theological reflection on bread, as told through my own story. It's about the relationships between our daily bread and the bread of life and the body of Christ and our individual bodies. If you have a complicated relationship with bread or your body or with God or with the church, if you are aching for a tangible way of knowing God is near, then I wrote this book for you. Pre-order your copy today and it will be on your doorstep just in time to read it with me this Lent. Our kitchen tip today is for those who feel like the pressure to shop for all the right foods or ingredients robs them of the joy of cooking and eating. First, recognize that it is a privilege to have the time and resources to learn how to shop according to the set of values that you hold dear. At its best, learning more about where our food comes from can draw you into deeper appreciation for the gifts of God. But at its worst, this process of learning can incite fear and anxiety as you strive to get it right. Be gentle with yourself. Choose just one food item that you'd like to learn more about. Chicken, let's say. Read a bit about the different terms used on packaging for eggs or chicken. Cage-free, free-range, etc. Where did these terms come from? What do they mean? Are there any standards that govern what the packaging can say? Examine how the buzzwords correlate to price in the grocery store aisle. Then, if you can, speak with someone who raises their own chickens. Ask them about the process of hatching chicks and collecting eggs. They can provide a lot more insight into the work of raising birds than a Google search alone. 
do a side-by-side taste test of their fresh eggs and the grocery store variety. See if you can tell any difference. Approach the process of learning with a sense of playfulness and wonder. The goal is an appreciation for God's creation, not a clear-cut answer for the cleanest choice. Over time, you can repeat this with other food items. Maybe try baking homemade bread as a way into learning about whole grains. Or try souring your own yogurt as you research the buzzwords behind dairy. If, over time, this process alters the way you shop and eat, be honest about why. Is it about a shift in values as you learn the background of your food? Or are you driven by the idea of what your food says about you? Maybe this learning will inspire you to go full homesteader, happily growing, fermenting, cooking everything you eat from scratch. If that deepens your appreciation for God's creation, go for it. But mostly, I hope this method of learning will ease your conscience about purchasing the items that work within your time and budget constraints, relieving some of the stress that comes with shopping each week. And now, to close, a prayer for those who love to eat clean. Creator God, you picked up a handful of dust, took a deep breath, and blew. From dust we were made, and to dust we will return. Humans made of humus, yet still so scared of dirt. Free us from anxiety and fear of what we eat. Fill us instead with wonder over what your hands, your soil, your people, farmers, bakers, butchers, cooks, botanists, and food scientists have made. Amen. Kitchen Meditations is brought to you by Edible Theology, where the communion table meets the dinner table. Learn more and sign up for our weekly newsletter at edibletheology.com. And be sure to follow us on Instagram at Edible Theology Project. A huge thank you to my assistant, Hannah Hargrave, and to our producers, Nick Thompson and Richard Clark at Area Code, who made this podcast possible. We would love it if you could rate and review us on iTunes and Spotify then share this episode with your friends. Your help ensures that others discover this podcast too.